The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is Make It Plain. Make It Plain. M.I.P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Plain. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest's writing has appeared in New York Magazine, Vulture, Slate, RBMA, and The Village Voice. He works as a producer on the NPR podcast, white lies he's from pa he teaches writing at auburn university and with the alabama prison arts and education project his first book came out a year ago it's released now in paperback and we do well to talk about it down along with that devil's bones especially as we talk about all of these confederate monuments and his book focuses on one probably with the most monuments, and that would be the KKK Grand Wizard himself, Nathan Bedford Forrest. The book again, down along with that devil's bones, Connor Town O'Neill joins us from Auburn. Hey, man, how are you? Welcome to Make It Plain. Hey, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, buddy. And uh, this is this is very interesting. So, Connor, if you give me a little point of personal privilege. The interesting thing about your book is it focuses on some geographic areas that are very close to me. My paternal great-great-great-grandmother was born in Selma in the 1850s. Mm. That family ultimately migrated to Memphis, which is the home of my paternal family. But Nashville is the home of my maternal family and the city in which I was raised. So when I see a book with Selma and Memphis and Nashville. I see you got Murfreesboro here too, not too far from Nashville. I have to begin to wonder, well, how does this book, how does Nathan Bedford Forrest intersect with my own life? Yeah. Uh, that's, a little, that's a little scary. But, uh, <laughs> Man, but, uh, I've talked to folks who knew one place and, and that's always intimidating because, you know, you're writing about a place you, you hope you do it justice, but man, someone who knows three of the places, it's a, it's yeah. a tall order. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what to make with make of that, but but help me out, man. Help me figure out what to make of it. Your story or the story you the beginning in your book begins with Selma, doesn't it? It does. It does. It starts with Selma, and it starts with Selma not not in the past, but but for the present, or at least the recent past for me. It starts back in 2015. I'm originally from Pennsylvania, but I had moved to I had moved to Alabama. And when I moved to Alabama, there were all of these 
50th anniversaries of, of civil rights movement events taking place. And, and I, I, I had this feeling like it was sort of being invited to try and understand this new place that I was living through the lens of those anniversaries. So I moved to Tuscaloosa in the, the summer of 2013. That's 50 years on the anniversary of the, the stand in the schoolhouse door. Uh, right. My first week of classes at the University of Alabama. That's the 50th anniversary of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing that claimed the lives of four little girls in Birmingham. And so I was really, I was following this, these these anniversaries and the connections to the present day were clear, right? 2013, 2014, these, this is early years of the movement for Black Lives. The Supreme Court had just gutted the Voting Rights Act and voting restrictions were immediately coming back into place. So those contemporary echoes of 50 years ago felt very clear. And it was it was that that brought me to Selma this day in 2015, the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. And President Obama was there, 40,000 other people show up to hear him speak. And, you know, Selma's a small city, 40,000 extra people there, parking's a nightmare. And so I, okay. I think, you know, oh, but Selma's one of these cities that has this extensive cemetery, you know, mausoleum, Spanish moss, the whole deal, its own system of roads. And so I think, oh, sure. stash my car over there. It's a quick walk down to the bridge. I can go listen to Obama and I can keep doing my thing, you know, the sort of white liberal thing, studying the movement and, you know, feeling good about myself. But what happened that day says like, no, you don't understand the half of it. And you're going to have to go way deeper into history if you're going to try and make sense of what's happening. And that's because when I pull into the cemetery, I see these signs that say Confederate Memorial Circle closed, no trespassing, mm. which is catnip, you know, okay, what's going on here? And there are a bunch of people sort of roaming this section of the cemetery with the Confederate graves. And and I, I know it sounds naive to say this now, given everything that's happened since. And it was a little bit naive then even, but I was just sort of like, huh? Confederates on a on a civil rights anniversary. And so I wander over and just, you know, approach this woman and say, what are y'all doing here? And come to learn this group calls themselves the Friends of Forest and had spent really the better part of the last two decades fighting about this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that they had put up. And, you know, like you say, putting up a statue of the first Grand Wizard of the Klan, that's going to be, that's going to raise an eyebrow anywhere. Doing right. it in Selma, given its connection to the movement, all the more provocative and insulting. But come to learn that statue first went up the same week that the city's first black mayor had been inaugurated in the year 2000. Right. So it just compounded the insult and sparked all these protests and debates. The statues eventually moved. It was originally on city property. It's moved out to the cemetery, but then it's stolen. But its theft only sparks more debate and controversy about whether they could replace it, put up another statue of Forrest. Right. Uh, that eventually sparked a federal lawsuit, which the Friends of Forrest had just won when I meet them. So they're out there sort of parading their victory, getting ready to put up another statue of Forrest. And so the dissonance of that, you know, the Confederates on this major civil rights anniversary, this moment of racial violence being commemorated, it just raised all of these questions. Who is Nathan Bedford Forrest? What does it mean to put up a statue of him? What does it mean to do it in the year 2015? And so th that was really the starting point. And those are some of the questions that the book is trying to grapple with. Nathan Bedford Forrest. Talk a little bit about who he was for people who might not know. I, like, of, of course, we know he's the Grand Wizard. But people may not fully understand his true role in the Civil War itself. Yeah. So it was just his 200th birthday celebrated by a bunch of Neo-Confederates this summer. So he's born in 1821. And really, was, Trump, was Trump there? Do we know? Trump wasn't there. Not that I know <laughs> okay. of, although I think they'd, I think they'd, they'd get along. Um, yeah. Yeah. But so he really sort of comes of age with the with the Deep South 
as we know it, right? So early 1820s, this is the Indian Removal Acts, the Trail of Tears, that that land is then opened up for plantations and for the sort of this migration of enslaved people from the upper south down into the deeper south and sort of the cotton kingdom down in, in Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, western Tennessee, and forest builds a fortune off of it. He's a slave trader. His slave mart, as it was called, in Memphis was trafficking a thousand people through it every year. He, he made millions off of it. By some counts, became one of the richest men in the South by 1860. Um, and so the war comes and, and the war is being fought over this question of, of whether the South could continue to, to enslave and, and make massive massive profits uh, from the slave trade. So he enlists, he uses his fortune to acquit his own cavalry battalion and quickly distinguishes himself as what his admirers call a sort of military genius. He's the most promoted soldier north or south. He, he begins as a private, finishes the war as a lieutenant general. But of course, distinguishing yourself as a military genius for the Confederacy is sort of a questionable accolade, right? And and it's it, in, in 1864, he and his men are accused of war crimes for, for murdering almost 200 black soldiers as they are surrendering at Fort Pillow. In his his report from the Battle of Fort Pillow, he says, let it be known that black soldiers cannot cope with Southerners. Of course, he doesn't say the word black soldiers. So, you know, again, implicated in these moments of racial violence. After the war, of course, he becomes the first Grand Wizard of the Klan. He also operates a, a convict leasing plantation outside of Memphis. So really, his whole life is really dictated by his taking part in and, and massively benefiting from, in a lot of instances, this, this racial hierarchy and exploitation that he was very much a part of. More MIP after this message. What did you find to be, and, and I'm aware of the the statue controversy, I, full disclosure, I am on for years, almost 25 years, have been on the board of the Jubilee at Selma. So we organize every commemoration every year. In fact, we have to invite you this coming year. Um, and so we, we organize that 50th. But, but I'm curious, when you talk to the people, once you got to that cemetery, mm -hmm. what were they saying? What, what was their affinity with Nathan Bedford for? He's their hero. He is for some for for some white Southerners. He is this like folk hero because he's not like Lee, right? Like Lee is the embodiment of the gentleman, the Southern gentleman, right? And went to West Point, one of the first families of Virginia, the gentry. You know, Forrest. He's born pretty poor. He's you know, they would say he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. Of course, right. trafficking other people, but didn't go to school. You know, he has a couple of months of school to his name. He was literate, but not but not really. He's very folksy. He has all these aphorisms. So again, you know, you talked about this connection to Trump in the same way, sort of skeptical of expertise, right. brash, so this sort of blue collar hero. I think that's that's the appeal that gets talked about publicly, right? Like on the plaques of these statues, they talk about him as the untutored genius. But I think the reasons that he's reviled by other people are also the reasons that he's admired, right? I mean, I think these folks, the Friends of Forest, they also belong to white nationalist organizations like the League of the right. South, responsible right. for instigating a lot of the violence in Charlottesville. So even if it doesn't get talked about publicly, it's really clear that part of the attraction here is that he is this, this white supremacist hero. And they're willing to defend his, his actions at Fort Pillow. They're willing to defend his actions as the first Grand Wizard of the Klan. So with some what they think are sort of historical caveats, but they'll they'll defend it. So mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean they admire him for the reasons that he's hated just as much as his 
quote unquote military genius. I wonder in, in my experience with some Southerners, they admire these people, but they don't acknowledge the truths about them. It's more of an admiration of their revisionist history. Mm. That this was someone who was fighting for Southern ideals and the way of the South. Well, what was the way of the South? They don't. They won't say that. They won't. Right. They, they won't talk about. It. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, maybe you have some people who are more vocal about this, but I but I rarely hear people say we admire Confederacy Nathan Beth Forrest because he had slaves and he killed people at Fort Pillow. I don't hear people say. At least they're not gonna say it to me. Yeah. And don't say it out loud. But and I remember a few years ago. We had this whole national debate at one time. I forgot where it started and where it ended about whether or not the Civil War was about enslavement in the first place. It really mm -hmm. wasn't. That was the debate. It wasn't really about enslavement. It was about something else, about a way of life. And it was about the industrial age. Well, yeah, it was the industrial age versus enslavement. But when you were encountering these people in Selma, were they as you mentioned caveats, but but how upfront and vocal were they or any of the other people you, you've experienced as to what these the crimes these people really committed? Mm. Yeah. Were they in, are they in denial about that? Well, no, I don't think so. Again, it's in some ways it's sort of it, it's a question of audience, right? Like they know they okay. know who they're talking to, and when they think they're not talking to northerner, or talking to black people, or talking to you know other people in power, it's sort of proprietary thing. One of the things that was really interesting is that there were some. Uh, I got my hands on some leaked emails from one of the, the friends of Forrest, and so she's writing to her United Daughters of the Confederacy listserv, or the Friends of Forrest listserv, and she's referring to Selma as what she calls. Zimbabwe on the Alabama, yeah, on the Alabama River. You know, she talks about people who were, when the statue was stolen, people searching for it, referring to them as being smarter than your average monkey. Um, My goodness. She once mentioned to me, and I think sort of, you know, would, would later try and get it off the record, but like saying, you know, there was a bounty for this or a reward for the statue, $20,000 if, if you lead to the finding of this bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest that had been stolen. And she said, do you know how much crack cocaine that could buy someone? So, the, I mean... That's not necessarily saying it's explicitly saying I think it's cool that he, you know, murdered 200 black soldiers at Fort Pillow. But but the racial I mean, they're not undertones. The racial tones of this monument debate are pretty clear. It refreshed my memory. I don't recall. What, what is the status of the monument now? They won in court once. But where is it now? Yeah. So the the whereabouts of the first one are still unknown. Right. But they put up a second one and they, they unveiled it soon right. after I had met them. I met them in March of 2015. They unveiled it at the end of May in 2015. And so that means it comes just three weeks before the Charleston Nine murders. And mm -hmm. and in the fallout from those murders, of course, it became clear that, that Dylan Roof had gone on this really strange like sightseeing tour through South Carolina, visiting Confederate monuments, Civil War battlefields, cemeteries where enslaved people were buried, uh, doing this tour of, of the Confederacy almost as a way to steal himself before he, he was going to go murder nine black parishioners, a mother Emanuel. And, and that's part of what kicked off what we're now still, we're still feeling the effects of this, this massive referendum on, on Confederate symbols. And, and the connection, the proximity of those two events, even if they're not directly connected, but the unveiling of the second forest bust in Selma and then the Charleston Nine murders and the fallout from that, those two things really became inextricable in my mind that um, I had this strange encounter with this group in Selma and about Confederate monuments. And then it becomes this 
big na- national referendum. And I think that was really the impetus for the book was was to follow stories about forest statues in particular during these couple of years, these last several years, where they've really been a really sort of mainstream part of American political debates. More MIP after this message. I don't know this either, do the monuments to forests still stand in Murfreesboro, Nashville, and Memphis as well? They still stand in Nashville and in Murfreesboro, despite, you know, continued attempt, persistent attempts to remove them. They still stand. The book climaxes in Memphis with the removal of this 30-foot bronze equestrian statue. It's really a this moving moment where I talked to this county commissioner, a man named Van Turner, who's a, a black Memphian, who talks about how he had really sort of masterminded the removal of, of this statue. And he talked about how, you know, it's a sort of late night removal. The crane comes in. It's bathed in this glow of the, the blue light of the police cruisers that have closed the street. And he talked about how when the, the straps of that crane took hold, and removed that statue. He really felt like this weight of all the the racial violence that that Forrest Mm -hmm. represented was being sort of lifted from the city. You know, he talked about how he told me, I was talking to him this summer, and he said, you know, Memphis has a lot of ghosts. We'll never get rid of the ghost of Dr. King, but we got rid of one ghost. We got rid of the Mm -hmm. ghost of the forest, um, which Mm -hmm. is really moving. And and it has this metaphorical importance. It's a 30-foot statue, but it also embodies so much other pain and violence in history. And, And so the removal of it was really powerful. Part of the unintended consequences of that, though, ironically, are that 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 statue is going to go back up on the grounds of the Confederate Museum out in Columbia, Tennessee. So it has this sort of recurrent feel to it, but at least it's out of Memphis. Some historians have said, and I don't remember all the details here either, that a lot of this, these statues and this hagiography of the Civil War and Civil War heroes didn't happen right after the Civil War, but happened later at a time when even some, I guess, some of the precursors to the Strom Thurmonds of the world needed to romanticize the Civil War, needed to clean it up, needed to do some PR for it, to to make it more legendary and romantic, as almost as if the war was not lost, almost as if the Confederacy didn't lose. It was kind of like a draw. Mm. Um, And is that your depiction of the history of these monuments as well, that that's how they kind of came to be. And that was part of an effort to change the image of what really happened. I think so. Absolutely. The Southern Poverty Law Center does some really good data journalism on this, showing, you know, they, they have this graph of showing when these monuments go up. And it's not 1866, it's not 1867, right. it's not in the immediate aftermath of the war. It's the turn of the 20th century when you see the first real spike of a lot of these Confederate monuments going up. And that's, of course, you know, after the collapse of Reconstruction, when ex-Confederates are returning to political power in the South implementing Jim Crow, and like you say, sort of tidying up the legacy of the Civil War, casting these men as heroes, and, and enshrining them as heroes publicly. And, you know, it's interesting, there's, there's this great book, Henry Louis Gates' book, Stony the Road, that details all of these depictions of, of Black Americans at that very same time, just saturating white Americans' consciousness with, with demeaning and dehumanizing depictions of Black Americans, you know, the sort of Sambo tropes. And at the same, it's, it, I think these Confederate monuments, you can think of them in one way as like sort of the other side of that coin, demeaning and dehumanizing depictions of Black people and heroic 
depictions of of the Confederates. And so it, it cleared to your point, it, it really it, it gives lie to this as them simply being about history. They're about honor. They're about remembering these people. They're about enshrining them as heroes, keeping them in our present because they're in our courthouse squares. You describe something as a cold civil war, don't you? Is that subside with all the miners? We've seen a lot of them come down. Is one side winning the Cold Civil War? Is it subsiding at all? What do you What do you think? Man, that's a good question. I mean, it is certainly gratifying to see. You know, the I think it's you know over a hundred have come down just in the summer of 2020, which is amazing. And I think a sign of this broader referendum that Americans are having with their history. More and more people are willing to connect something like a Confederate monument to the broader you know structural issues and that they represent the hoarding of wealth, of opportunities, of good choices. Of, of health um, to enshrine this racial hierarchy, but it's complicated. You know, when I talk about when I talk about the Cold Civil War, I guess I'm trying to make a distinction to show that the Union had a military victory, but whether or not they had an ideological victory is is a much more difficult. Um, because of course, the Union victory did lead to emancipation, and by no means mean to understate the importance of that. But of course, the South and really America more generally was justifying the slave system on this idea that the men and women that they were enslaving were inherently in- inferior by virtue of their race, which is an idea that was invented. Right? There's no biological basis for it. So that racial hierarchy that that slavery was a part of, and this lie that we were t- that Americans were telling about white supremacy is going is by no means vanquished at Appomattox. It just takes different forms. It's not a right. military fight anymore. And so that's why I call it a cold civil war, right? It, it it's no longer battlefields, right. it's schoolhouses, sure. it's it's lawyers in the courtroom, it's real estate agents and banks issuing mortgages yeah. to some people and not to others. It's it's who police defend and who they see as as criminals. So that's thornier, right? Who's who's winning that? It's tough to say. I mean, there's certainly been good movement, you know, decades, really centuries of work to to get more white Americans to be honest about how this country works and who it's meant to benefit and who pays the price for that. And I think you can you can read the removal of more of these Confederate monuments as a step in the right direction. And yet we still have something like a 10 to 1 racial wealth gap in this country. So there's a lot of work left to do for sure. How do your Back students at, war still being fought? How do your students at Auburn react to this book and to this conversation? The state of Alabama is an, uh, about 20% black. Auburn is less than 4% black. There's just an op-ed in the paper from a student uh, detailing how segregated like the Greek system here still is. Right. There was a, last summer, this really moving and powerful social media campaign of people detailing what it's like to be black at Auburn um, and, the, and the dehumanizing effects that that has. What I've noticed with my students who are, given those numbers, overwhelmingly white is that a lot of times this is something that a lot of them are just not thinking about that they're still sort of Ta-Nehisi Coates calls it the dream. They're still in this dream that like racism doesn't affect them. That like maybe maybe race is a problem for black people and and that's hard, but you know, brave people like Martin Luther King marched and didn't they solve it? Like what's the issue here? And I think a lot of how Auburn operates is meant to to have them unquestion that and not to think about it. That it's just sort of a playground for them to keep to keep dreaming their dream around other other folks who are dreaming too. So part of you know part of what I see as my job is just to, to to try and wake them up a little bit, ask them you know questions that they've taken for granted. But there's resistance to it for sure. It's the, these are these are difficult questions. Your book though is it your intention that somehow your book still reaches some of those people? Is, I hope is that so. yeah? I hope so. I, I think in some ways I wrote this book 
generally, I think, you know, I, I, I try to take up the mandate of like white people talking to other white people about race, which is something that that we we just don't do. And, and, and right. so we keep dreaming. But but in a more specific way, I, th- I I was writing this book to an earlier version of me who hadn't thought about these questions, who had just taken it, mm. who had just, you know, mm-hmm. sort of absorbed the received wisdom that like, this isn't about me. That race yeah. is not a race yeah. isn't a thing for for white people. We just are. You know, it's a given. It's the it's the default or the norm. And that I really did. I this this book. I, I know I sound naive when I say this because I was incredibly naive as a, you know as a as a younger person and very recently probably still am in a lot of ways. But writing it to an earlier version of me to say like hey, you're swimming in this stuff. So much of these questions of, of racial prerogative and racial violence have maybe in unseen ways, maybe in, in, in more subtle ways, but no less insidious ways have shaped my life too. The neighborhood where my folks were able to buy a house, right? The school... The public, the, the public school that I went to, that was, def, you know, sort of de facto segregated. How my parents were able to leverage that house that was zoned in such a way to send me to that school, to co-sign loans, to send me to to a college, you know. So so in, in, in so many different ways, structural ways, this idea of, of, of this racial hierarchy has shaped the lines on which my life has moved. And all the while, I was naive to them. So there, there, there are questions that are political and structural, but there are also, you know, questions that are personal and individual. And, and, and I think you really have to try and grapple with both. And so that's why the book takes on these big, these bigger questions, historical questions, chronicling these protest movements, but it also makes these moves into us try and capture the the more personal journey that I was going on to the sort of awakening, I guess you'd call it that I've been on. And it's it's my hope to connect those two things that that it can reach, it can reach folks who who maybe haven't thought much about this, but can get them not just to think about themselves, but their lives in the, the bigger context of this country. Down along with that devil's bones, now available in paperback, my guest's first book, Connor Town, O'Neill's first book, which what are you working on next, man? I'm working on another season of White Lies right now. So that's why I got my, my fancy microphone out. I'm, I'm, I'm back on the podcast beat. Good, good, good. Well, congratulations on that. Folks, do check out White Lies and do also check out Down Along with the Devil's Bones. It's available on paperback. Tell everyone about it. And maybe there's some people you all know. I think we all know someone who can benefit from this who might think this is not uh, relevant. You know, I, I never had to be told that the Confederate flag and those things were wrong. There was just something that I knew about them that they were wrong. However... And my, I'll share with you, my audience has heard me tell this story before. My cousin was University of Tennessee's first African-American homecoming queen in the mid 80s. Wow. And I went to the game. And, you know, as you, as you know, Knoxville has its own history and its own cold civil war that's ongoing. Notorious Knoxville's racism. The further east you tend to go in the state, the racism gets worse in Tennessee. That was our experience in my era. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Memphis was predominantly black. Nashville was a little bit better. Three black colleges. Knoxville, though, you didn't go to. You weren't in Knoxville after sundown. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was worried about my cousin, man, because she was going to be riding around ninety thousand seat Nayland Stadium in an open car mm-hmm. and be the first African American. So I was a nervous wreck. So I decided I was going to be her security detail all by myself. And I was going to police the whole 90,000. I was about 15 years old. I was going to police all of Nayland Staley and make sure nothing happened to her. But fortunately, nothing did. And it was all mm. fine. But they played Ole Miss, Connor. And Ole Miss had a predominantly black football team. They still were flying the Confederate flag as their battle flag, the football team, mm-hmm. singing, I wish I was in Dixie. And the fans wore the gray Confederate hats from the Civil War. 
including the black parents of those football players. Wow. And that served as a traumatic distraction for me from even my cousin's safety. Once I realized one whole lot I could do with 90,000 people by myself, I'm like, wow, what? These are adults. I'm not an adult yet, but I'm 15. And I'm like, why do I at 15 understand how inappropriate that is? And these grown adults don't. But I guess, you know, then I just kind of said, well, these are their kids. They're playing for Ole Miss. They probably feel like they don't have a choice. Because mm. those kids didn't have what you described as some of the advantages you had coming up the way you came up. Mm-hmm. Black kid had to get a football scholarship to go to school like Ole Miss. That's all, that's all so I have to, as now, if my son, I wouldn't have been out there wearing no <laughs> Confederate battle gear mm-hmm. if my son won that football field. But these parents felt compelled to do that either, either because they felt they had to or that they too were unaware of the meeting, meaning of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then on the other hand, everybody used to watch Dukes of Hazzard on TV and not think anything about it. Yeah. You know, it was it was like nobody I would cringe when the back of that car had the Confederate like I would cringe. But everybody else like, oh, you know, it's just TV show. No big thing. So we've come clearly a long way with a long way to go. And I, and I think your book, I think your book helps us, man. I hope it continues to help us. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. It, it is amazing how sports can point out so many of these issues. You know, I think that's, that's true. That's been true more recently with the NFL. But in these moments that we don't think are political, really are. I mean, of course they are. But like we sort of take, we we want to think or delude ourselves into thinking that they're not political. But even them, they they stage all of these issues just the same way. One of the folks that I talked to in my book had a this sort of radicalizing moment at a football game. He was in one of the first one of the first integrated classes at Middle Tennessee State, just in Murfreesboro, just south of Nashville, and and they had they, they had a student. General Forrest was their mascot, and a student would dress up on horseback, riding the sidelines, Confederate flags in the stands, the band playing Dixie, and and he sort of took it on as his sort of personal mission to be like, no, you need to know what this means, what this represents, and how you are holding us back. Like we can be so much better than you have if you can really own up to what that really means, then maybe we can get past it. But it, as your story illustrates, and you know, as, as so many other present day ones do, it's it's something we're still struggling with. We don't want to give that up, partly because it's 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 about prerogative, right? It's white folks' prerogative saying, "Oh no, yeah. look, like I'm just doing my thing. This isn't. I, I want to have my history. I want to have my football games. I want to do it the way I want to do it, and no one is going to tell me otherwise. It's just this privilege and prerogative that I get over." Connertown O'Neill's Down Along With That Devil's Bones, folks, available everywhere in paperback. Be sure to check it out. Let's continue to enlighten ourselves and to enlighten others. We must have these conversations. Check out also White Lives, the podcast. Connor, great to talk to you, man. Oh, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Mark. Ooh, thank you. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret. 
and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.